Welcome to the show. I'm Malak Fuad, and this is what I did next from ANT Media. In this series, we talk to inspirational guests about those moments in life when you're faced with a crossroads and have to decide which way to go. Do you choose the well-worn shore route or do you jump off the deep end and hope it will all work out? Our guests have all confronted this dilemma and we discuss how this happens and how it changed the course of their lives. Naguib Samih Nasif. These three names are synonymous with success in Egypt and the Middle East as a whole. The Sawidis brothers are so well known that first names are all that's needed for people to know who they are. They continue to capture the imagination decades after first making their mark on the business and social landscape. My guest today is Samir. We met at the end of 2020 for our interview. He is the founder of Orascom Development Holding, which operates 33 hotels with over 7,000 rooms and controls approximately 100 million square meters of land. He's perhaps best known as the man behind El Guna, a tourist resort town on the Red Sea coast of Egypt. Guna prides itself on its eco-friendly and sustainably-minded approach to living. It boasts a large community of Egyptians and expats alike, and is loved for its relaxed lifestyle. Alongside Guna, Samir has also put his name to some very innovative resorts in Oman, Montenegro, and Andermatt in Switzerland, among others. Aside from all this, Samir is above all a sort of renaissance man, and a person who doesn't define himself by his career or profession. He has a multitude of interests and he consciously prioritizes the work-life balance. Now that he's no longer involved in the day-to-day running of the company, he's spending time developing his passions and checking off his extensive bucket list. We began our conversation by zooming in on one of the show's regular features, discussing the books and music that inspire him. I actually get my most important uh, inspirations in life from hot showers in the morning. They usually <laughs> result in the best ideas. The idea has come the, to you the newest, then. The uh, revelations and uh, uh, it's really that. Uh, I have this uh, habit of uh, taking very prolonged showers in the morning, not because I, I need to stay like that long, but it, it actually is a time of reflection and so on. And then swimming, which I do when I'm in, when I am allowed, uh, I swim practically every day and uh, that is the time of organization. So of that's planning. quite meditative, the no, swim. No, no, the swim is not meditating for me at all. It's really a full function, a functional session of planning. Huh. So what am I going to do today? What am I going to do th- tomorrow? What did I do yesterday that I didn't uh, finish? And, and How so interesting. So it's it's as if you're writing in your calendar. Yeah. yeah. Wow. With timings and the whole thing? Not to that Not extent, so but at least uh, to, to make a full plan yeah. of action and reflect on uh, the previous day. Very interesting. Are you a reader or not really? Not as much as I used to be and not as much as I would like to be. I find reading books are very, uh, um, inf- not only informative, but forming. The more you read, the more you can adjust and and uh, complement what you're doing. So, are you pr- predominantly when you have the time? Do you read fiction or non-fiction? I like to read mainly history because for me, history is uh, revealing the future. So, if you know how people used to live for a long time in a, a certain place, you can have some estimate of what they're up to, or what they could be doing, or how they will interact in certain situations in the future. So it's quite uh, eye-opening. And do you like a particular period of history, or is it? do you prefer to think of the individual? Do you... No, not at all. I, I, I concentrate much more on nations. 
Oh, on nations, I see. So what happened in the middle century in Europe? Uh, uh, when did Europe really become a civilization? And uh, uh, how many wars did they have? And then when you find out that these guys have been killing each other for like hundreds of years, you understand things like the First and Second World War. Yeah. And um, what about films? Not really. I use uh, films basically to fall asleep. <laughs> So before I sleep, I put something on Netflix. Usually it takes me five, six nights to watch a movie. It's quite rare that I watch a, a movie. A whole thing, from, yeah. yeah. And what about music? I know that music has taken a big proportion of your life now. Yes. What sort of, I mean, you're a big classical music fan. Yes. Do you have other styles of music you like? Well, of course I do. But uh, let's say the, like my real, uh, my heart is really in classical music. And it's the type of music that I could listen to most of the time. But I'm very open to, uh, let's say I like Umm Kalsum, I like very old classical uh, Arabic music, and then I love the the trashy, cheap uh, belly Night dancing. I, I found our new Arabic songs have become uh, really forming in a way that uh, it, it transpires this spirit of let's have fun, yeah. which is very typical for the Egyptians. It's very and Egyptian the, the trait. songs now are becoming more and more uh, inducive of yeah. that mood. So I love this kind of music as well, but I wouldn't listen to it. Sure. Let's put it this way. If, if, you're, if we're sitting here alone, uh, I would not listen to it. If you're in a bar or a club, you'll have bar, fun listening club, to it. But it, I find that they've found a way of uh, putting some uh, atmosphere. But we Egyptians have always had a sense of humor, and it comes through in most things we do. Yes, and so the fact that it's coming through in the lyrics of of the new music is very telling. Yes, yeah, and you you obviously you said classical music is a big part of your life. Which composer or which composers would you would you sing? Again, out? it's a matter of the mood. If you were uh, in the morning, obviously uh, uh, before breakfast or during breakfast, you're not going to listen to Wagner. But let's say in the evening, you're. Uh, just out of the shower and you're getting ready to go out and you're going to have a drink, then that would be like the perfect... Uh, because he's quite a dramatic composer, right? Dramatic and, and very lively. Then if you're in the car and you're listening to music, then why not a Brahms symphony, you know? And then if you're in a mellow mood, then usually I shift to piano concertos and there's a lot of very good ones. What would you say would be if you had to single out two or three pivot points in your life? Well, the first one obviously was, where am I going to study? So having finished school, the choice was obviously anywhere. And uh, I fortunately had uh, very good grades so that uh, this uh, widened even uh, the choice of universities wherever. And you had a German education. Because I had a German education, it somehow seemed closer to home and easier to go to the to a German university and not to the USA, for example, which would have been a bit alien to me yeah. at that time. So that's what I did, and it was very pivotal. And where did you go? I went to Berlin to the technical university there, and I studied engineering and economics. They have this combination, and I already had... Uh, assumed that after I finish my studies, I will come back and start a business, whatever it is. But it was always clear for me that uh, I'm going to need to make a lot of money if I want to be happy. And uh, the best way to do it is to start a business. And I said the best uh, education would be something that combines the knowledge of engineering, which was my passion, and the economy, uh, economics, which is something that you need to understand. Mm -hmm. It's a practicality. 
And I'm always interested because I've I've obviously watched a few interviews with you in preparation for today. Why is it that the three of you, the three or three brothers, decided to all set up on your own as opposed to pooling together into something common? Well, because we are different as much as we look alike, but we are quite different. And uh, we always felt that uh, uh, competing within the same box would end up uh, in in ugly disputes and fights and so on. So it was safer for our relationship, which we cherish very much, which has kept also all these years, um, would be best served if everybody is his own boss. You know, you put three bosses in a box, everybody wants to boss the others, it doesn't course. work. So that's why really. And my father encouraged us to do our thing. As he did. As he did. And as he, um, you know, wanted also for his children to benefit from the fact of doing something alone versus uh, copying or following mm -hmm. or being part of what he has. Mm -hmm. So the university in Germany was a pivot point, perhaps your first pivot point. What would you say came after that in terms of the next uh, shift? Well, the, f the next shift was uh, uh, rebelling against a uh, marriage that wasn't working. And, you know, we as Copts and Orthodox, uh, it's a tough decision. Absolutely. And it defies common practice, common accepted uh, norms. So that was a big pivot. In between that, it was all about business, uh, creating wealth, uh, making sure that you stand on your own and that you have everything that you want and a bit more so as to be able to give happily. Because, you know, when you don't have a lot, it's not as easy to give. Of course. When you have a lot, it's it's much easier. Of course. I think also the, the personal pivot you mentioned about the your marriage breakdown was a very public one. In yes. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yes. And I think you paved the way, actually, for a lot of other people after that to feel a bit more confident to, to take the path they wanted. I don't know about that, but I just know that was uh, a, a challenge yeah. worth taking. But in my life, I've always felt that uh, uh, norms and regulations and rules and uh, I mean, social yes. norms, regulations and rules are not as holy as they are portrayed and that everybody should do his own thing. Yeah, I agree. Especially that most of them are outdated. You know, exactly. What my parents would have never dreamt of doing, my children are doing in front of my parents and even my parents look at it as very normal. Yeah which means that the, the norms that people might be imposing on you will expire in 10, 20 years, Absolutely. but they don't know it. I also find that we underestimate even the older generation sometimes because I have a friend who went against the grain in something very um, unusual, and uh, she expected uh, the older generation, the eight-year-olds and so on, to be completely against it, and they were incredibly supportive. So I think, you know, everyone has their own perceptions of what people are going to think. I just think you have to develop your own set of rules and regulations and adhere to them and not copy blindly things that others tell you, especially when you have some um, aspirations. A lot of times people will give you advice based on what they would have done had they been in this situation, mm -hmm. which doesn't apply to you. So if somebody tells you, oh, it cannot be done. Yeah. You know, yeah. how can you be so crazy to start something like this? Mm -hmm. It's never going to mm -hmm. work. It's basically an advice, very often genuine, but uh, they misinterpret their failures Absolutely. To, to do it themselves Absolutely. as a justification yeah. to give this advice. Yes. So I always tell people, listen, 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 and then make sure 
when you take that uh, uh, speech that you analyze it and mm. see if it applies to you yeah. or not. It's their very own often fears. you'll get uh, uh, advice that is uh, uh, well-founded. You know, this will not work because uh, uh, when I tried it, I discovered that the law says you can't do it, for example. Okay, if you don't listen categorically, then you do the same exercise and because of a certain law or a regulation, you will fail. So listening is always good, but... Uh, you take it all on board and then decide what to use and what not to use. Yes. talked a lot about uh, having the guts to do something and it's um, it's something that you you know it's an important part of of your makeup um how did you find the determination to begin guna and then follow it through out of fear of uh, failure because failure is something that would uh, like kill me basically so i don't like uh, to fail and uh, I'm very persistent in the pursuit of success, even if it's at uh, the end of the world or at the end of my life. But uh, I don't really like to give up uh, uh, sooner than necessary. So, I mean, it took me 30 years to give up uh, doing a project in Cuba. You started a project in Cuba? I didn't know that. 20, 28 years ago, I was going to do a project there and I finalized drawings and formed the company and then it didn't work. Then I tried again 10 years later, they hadn't changed. Then I tried again a few years ago, seven or eight years ago, they were just as bad. So I finally gave it up. And that's probably a sign of wisdom that you've, you've, kept, you've realized that it's it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you you win some, you lose exactly. some. This is something that one has to learn. But I'm a bad loser, you know. My, we, we are all bad losers, yeah. actually. Nasif less, Nagib as bad or worse. Yeah. Nagib used to have a sign in his office that says, show me a good loser, <laughs> I'll show you a loser. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Considering that you're also competitive, did that translate into sports for any of you? Are you competitive no. in sports or is it purely Every in business? Every time I started something uh, to compete in sports, uh, I found out early that I'm not going to be among the top and I would give it up. But um, I am not competitive at all, actually. Contrary to what people might think. You prefer to operate in, in, in empty spaces exactly. where you're king, right? That's what I've, I've been reading about. I hate yeah. competition yeah. and I hate to compete. I hate the pressure it puts. I hate the compromises one has to do sometimes to like be ahead of the others. I hate squeezing uh, people just to get more than the others and so on. So I have always avoided in my life, actually, if you look at everything that I've done uh, business-wise, hardly anything that I've done or any place where I've gone uh, is uh, uh, did I face a lot of competition, if any. And the interesting thing in Guna is obviously it was a completely blank slate when you started. Obviously, yeah. it was completely empty. Did you, as time went on and things became a bit more structured and standardized, did you find that that was beginning to get a little bit uh, of a straitjacket for you? That you couldn't be as uh, inventive or as creative as you Not wanted? Not at all. It's Not the other at way all. around. The further we progressed and the more success we we had, the more courage I had to do more and more expensive things and more sophisticated things. Can you give me an example? Like, for example, it used to be a project, you know, just a touristic development. And then one day I woke up and said, what is this? This should become a town. Mm -hmm. And because I had the means and I had the success, 
it was uh, a plan that made sense. So, I mean, what, 10, 15 years later? But it would have been a joke if I had come to this piece of desert 30 years ago and said, I'm going to build myself a town. Mm -hmm. So the evolution and the innovation comes much easier when you have a base. The facts are on the ground. Right. Yeah. At the beginning, you had, what, two hotels and then a few villas. And then at some point, you said, we either grow or we stay or what, no, no, what, no. what changed for you? The growth was always a function of uh, uh, getting things to Guna that would not be sustainable at a small size. Like, I wanted a school. A town without a school doesn't make sense. But a town with 60, a uh, school with 60 kids doesn't make of sense. Of course, right? of course. So I need more people here. Then we need a hospital if somebody gets sick. And the hospital needs a lot of patients. Otherwise, it's an expensive place. And the do good doctors don't stay in hospitals that are deserted, even if you pay them millions. So in a way, these factors are the ones that uh, dictated growth, not the, the glory of uh, being bigger. Mm. I mean, if I needed more, which I did at the time, the solution was to go somewhere else and start another one and another one and another one not to just whip it mm, to growth mm, mm. at any cost or any price. So growth has never been a, a, a motor for me as much as it was the need. There's a term that uh, we use in this business called critical mass. Yes. And the critical mass is really critical. Mm -hmm. You don't have it, you don't have a town. But how do you bring the people here? I mean, what, what You attract the... them, you give them jobs. You, I, I did a brewery here because a brewery meant immediately 200 employees, a couple of engineers, a couple of uh, foreigners, uh, brewmasters and so on. The winery, the same. Um, the hospital, you get the doctors, they live here, they have homes, they have children, they send them to the school, the teachers in the school, they have their own children, they, they, they need to do this and that. Of course. They, so this is how you do it. But for me as a resident of Guna as well. That's different because you guys uh, uh, initially came here not as residents, but as a second home exactly. buyers. Yeah. The trend now is shifting. Uh, and now we have more people that are volunteering to come to live here, even though I did not provide opportunities or jobs for them. They came with their own ideas. They came with their own businesses. Mm, but that came later. They came That's obviously it. later. But what I find very fascinating about Guna is that there's a real sense of community and there's a real sense that it's an organic town, even though it's man-made, completely a new well, town. Well, every town is man-made. Every, every town is man-made, but it's a new town and it doesn't feel like a new town. And the combination of foreigners, Egyptians is unique, not just to Egypt, but to the entire region. Um, and it just creates a very uh, relaxed atmosphere. And I always I always think that that's a reflection of you because you're a very relaxed person, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I wouldn't have a, a like a, a stressful... Exactly. And, and it, you know, we come through the gate of Guna by car from Cairo and I can see all of us in the car just decompress, literally, as we're coming through the gate of Guna. And I think that everyone I've spoken to who comes back and forth like we do, feels the same. And there's something about the community here and the, the, the ease of the lifestyle, which is very conducive to that. Because we, 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 there is no stress. I mean, there are not many sources of stress here. It's not like you'll have some idiot uh, block the road in front of you and just uh, go out of the car and start chatting because people are scared to do this here. Yeah. They know 
you know if we if you get on our nerves with this kind of attitude your car will not be admitted to come into mm. luna uh, people feel safe uh, because of all this uh, safety precautions we have we have more than 650 security personnel uh, in this town and they're very efficient they, because We've they have on them a few sense, times. sense of empowerment yeah. they know that they are respected nobody can bully them you know you can't tell one of these security people don't you know who i am you know Absolutely. and then scare the hell out some of people him. try they try but, but yeah. uh, usually the reaction that they get when this security man complains to us is very uh, mm. demeaning to them you know? Absolutely. Like i've had a few people where i told them you know if you don't apologize and the guy accepts his your apology yeah your car is never going to come back yeah you're not welcome our show's other staple question got an unusual answer even though I asked him for his ideal six dinner party guests, Samir quickly fired back with just one name. Jesus Christ. That would be my first choice. Interesting. Because I would need to understand more the philosophy and the background and why now? Why didn't you come 2000 years earlier? Or later. Or later. Why in this Middle East and not somewhere else? So it would be more than enough to have dinner with Jesus without anybody else. I don't think you'd need anyone else <laughs> exactly. except him. Absolutely. So you'd want a one-on-one -on -one with him, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. I think you could go on for several evenings together anyway. It wouldn't just be one dinner. I don't think I could uh, have the privilege of uh, taking so much time. So what would you be? Uh, those are the those are interesting questions. Would you have, for example, um, if I was in that situation, I might want to ask advice. Well, I would be asking questions to make up uh, my mind about many uh, intriguing issues where I'm not 100% sure that I'm right. And probably that would be the biggest uh, purpose of that meeting, you know, like, what's next? Uh, what do you really expect from us? Do we really have to behave according to social norms or as long as I feel comfortable with my life? Am I okay with you? You know, like, Will you how bad me? is it? Will you accept be, me? <laughs> how bad is it to be a little bit naughty? Yeah, and yeah. Like, where's the limit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these questions, I mean, to just have a. Those are vital guidance. questions, yeah. Yes, and they're questions that I just generally don't believe uh, can be answered by humans. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's everyone's guess what he should advise others and not based on real knowledge. And I think so much of generally, I mean, regardless of which religion, but so many religions are dogmatic in such uh, strict parameters about what, how you should live your life. And in the end, it's between you and God, really. Yeah, I mean, all the religions are tools for a human to develop a relationship with his creator. And it's up to you to choose the, the tools out of that toolbox, like, you know, the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, these are toolboxes. You open them and you take the tools that you think will be useful for the errand that you have. Do you consider yourself a religious person? Well, it depends who you ask. Because if you ask uh, like a typical priest, he would say that guy's not religious. He hasn't been to church on Sunday every week and he's been skipping church for a long time. So he's not religious. If you ask uh, somebody who doesn't believe in God, he'll tell you, my God, this guy is crazy. He still believes believing in God and so on. So 
in a way you you it's all relative mm. i am happy with my uh, beliefs i am happy with my relationship uh, with god meaning that i feel uh, uh, from time to time that i'm close uh, that i'm being uh, blessed that i'm being protected mm -hmm. That I'm being punished, yeah. You know, so yeah. as long as this uh, interaction is happening, I feel happy with yeah. My, uh, yeah. my religious and spiritual situation. Tell me about. I know you had a bucket list, and uh, I'd like to know what was on the original bucket list because you've spoken about a couple of things that you uh, you've spoken about the fact that you finished the bucket list. But I'd like to know what was on it to begin with. Well, when I was very young, I wanted uh, uh, toys and more toys. When I grew a little bit older, I wanted sports and more sports. And then I wanted girls and more girls. And then I wanted kids and more kids. And along that, always money, money, money. I always wanted to have money because I always considered money as a tool to give you more freedom yeah. and more ownership of your time. And uh, that was the real purpose. Then I wanted, uh, as I said, uh, children, which I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to help, kind of like now it's time to give back. Yeah. Since I've, I have more than enough for myself, it's time to give back. And uh, that also happened as part of the, the uh, strategic bucket list uh, <laughs> additions over the years. Yeah. And hobby-wise, so you, I know you went around the world. I used to go fishing all and the fishing, time. Yeah. I loved fishing so much that I practically fished all the seas of the world. <laughs> I, I like hunting. Uh, as I said before, I like classical music, so I was a big uh, uh, fan of uh, attending concerts left, right, and center. So these were all items on my bucket list that I... That you've checked off. And now you're focused on the piano as your final item. Not final. I mean, this is the first item in the in the new bucket list. In the list. new one. Hopefully by the time I finish this uh, concert, I will have developed a few more. And you're planning on having a concert here in Guna? Also, yes. And have you planned that out? You had said at the age of 65 you were going to do that? Yes, I'm 65. Uh, until the 28th of January 23. So I have to do it before the 28th okay. of January okay. in two years. So I have two years left. I want to do the first one here. If I'm good enough, I will do the second one in Cairo. And then obviously the last one I'll do in Switzerland. And are you practicing every single day? Every day. Every day. And you find it uh, soothing, meditative? No, frustrating. It's frustrating you. Because, you know, at this age to learn to play an instrument like the piano, it's very difficult. Uh, my memory was never uh, my strengths. So to memorize all these notes, you know, at the end of the day, when you give a concerto, you have to play for half an hour from memory. And you're not following music. You're not following a sheet of music. Of course I am. But, oh, you uh, are. But you don't give concerts like this. Ah. Have you ever been to a... Uh, but there's always a sheet of music in front of them. Never. No, isn't there? Never, never. You have the sheets in front of the uh, orchestra. I see. not the soloist. I see. Okay. So it's from memory. That's tough. That's very tough. And it's another language. The, the music Completely, notes. Completely, but I mean, everybody does it. Yeah. So. so for you, it's a challenge. Big challenge. Yeah. Well, I, I will come and watch you for sure. <laughs> for sure. So you've often talked about persistence and guts as being as important as hard work. They're more important. More important. Tell hard me about work that. Hard work is linear. Okay. The more you work, the more you do out of these attributes or out of your luck. So let's say luck is 60%. Persistence, perseverance, and guts combined are 14%. And intelligence is 14%. 
So it's more about the uh, persistence and, uh, and, and guts. 14, 14, yeah, 12, yeah. and 60. So intelligence doesn't really play much of a role. Of course it does. If you're, if you're less than 8 out of uh, 14, uh, you don't really stand a chance. Yeah. If you have very little intelligence, then basically uh, you will not even recognize luck as such. But what I'm saying is that uh, you don't need to be a genius. Mm. I mean, just above average with a lot of luck, you'll make much more money than Einstein mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, the, and the German workaholic that yeah. works 14, 15 Absolutely. hours a day. But uh, only, luck, only work is linear. The more you work, the more you make out of your luck. But if you're not lucky, you can work Absolutely. your butt and you won't Absolutely. get anywhere. Uh, timing has a lot to do with things, I think, That's as well. part of the luck. That's in luck. Anything that you don't control goes into the 60%. You don't control where you're born. You don't control yeah. uh, what uh, background your parents have, what schooling they were able to provide you, uh, what era. I mean, look at my father. He will tell you luck is 80% because he was literally successful. Every time he was successful, something out of his hands happened. You know, his company he started reached the too much of a size so it was nationalized during Nasser he goes to Libya starts again then Gaddafi comes yeah. so he goes back to Egypt and starts again and in the beginning when he started again it was chaos but this is not only luck this is a, a, a characteristic of someone who I think you have it as well who you know will not accept no or will not accept yes but any he would other have way. been much more successful let's say than he he finally was uh, had he not had all these hiccups. Of course. Yeah, but that I'm just saying that luck plays a huge role because for sure he's more intelligent and much more hardworking than me. But in his case, I'm me. sure that those are obviously clear pivot points in his life and one led to the other and without one, the other wouldn't have happened and so on. The whole destiny issue. He wasn't meant to be... Lucky. <laughs> no, on the contrary. He wasn't meant to be in Egypt full-time or in Libya full-time or... No, 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 no. I think you're... Uh, no, I disagree. He would have, he's, he was very, very Egyptian. Yes. Even going to Libya uh, was a big uh, uh, pain for him. Right. I remember when they allowed people to leave the country, we were going to immigrate to Canada. And then nobody had, the, I mean, my parents just didn't feel like leaving Egypt. Mm -hmm. And the compromise was that he goes to Libya where he can come every few weeks and so on. And, and you were here. And we stayed here. Yeah. So you were still quite young at the time. Oh yeah, we you were, were in your te your teenagers. Not even. Not even. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the nationalization took part uh, uh, sixty one, and I'm born fifty seven. Yeah. So I was thirteen, fourteen. So your mother was in charge of three boys, which is not an easy thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's a strong woman. I get the feeling that for you, balance is everything, and not not too much of one thing outweighs the other. Yeah, you should not allow any sector or anything in your life to to overtake you. Like, uh, I find it a huge sacrifice for somebody to give up everything to be the number one runner, the number one jumper, the one, mm -hmm. you know, because I know what it takes to do that. And it's basically a, a write-off of everything but this. Yeah. And that is something that I uh, I would never do. That also applies to money. If if you over focus on making money, you end up uh, never having time to use to enjoy it, it or to give it away properly. You know. And how have you instilled that in your children? Is that something that you were consciously trying to convey to them? You can't convey anything to the generation that is uh, now uh, coming up because 
they've learned very early that uh, the parents are not really the best source of information. When we were growing up, there was no internet, there was nothing, uh, even books were not so easy to get. And whenever you needed advice, the only knowledge that you found around you was your teacher or your parents. Mm -hmm. So we had much more respect for uh, their advice and their mm -hmm. knowledge Absolutely. than the kids of today who know that whenever they'll ask you something, probably you don't either don't know it properly or you don't know enough about it. So it's much better to ask Google, mm. you know. But I also think that children um, are extremely observant and, and That's absorb from their parents course. just by, by, by seeing how they're living and what they're doing. And the smart kids uh, are the ones that will observe and avoid, not just copy. Sometimes you observe that your parents are doing something that uh, is not very... Uh, you, you know, and uh, like, like I grew up seeing my father work ridiculously mm -hmm. much. And I always told myself, that's not a life for me. I don't like working so much. It's, uh, it takes away the pleasure of other things mm. in life. And I don't believe that God made us here to just work like Absolutely. crazy, you know, like this is the Calvinistic, uh, Puritanical, to yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the last or 2020 in the sense of how. Uh, how has the pandemic uh, shifted your your way of thinking, or what do you think will be will be looking at more in the future in terms of lifestyle? Well, you know, 2020 to me was the worst year of my life, and I was doing the math. I actually had more issues 2020 than I had in my entire life combined. So Gosh, that's a big, a big sentence. It is at the true, you know, like even medically, health-wise, you know, when, um, you get your chicken pox and this kind of stuff, it's nothing. Of course. Your measles, yeah. whatever. Uh, I had one big incident, which is uh, the operation in my legs that went south. and uh, That was when you were much younger. Yes. Yeah. But that's it. That's it, yeah. Now come this year. I start with a bad case of Corona. I have to be hospitalized. And, you know, at one point of time, you start worrying. I get out of this. I get cancer. I get out of this. I get a, uh, have a car accident uh, and this I a, a, fracture a, a vertebra. A bad year. And then not to mention the business side. Of not course. Not to mention also some issues here yeah, in Egypt. Yeah. Not to mention that my mother got very sick and we were like in a panic. Thank God she's okay now. Uh, not to mention a separation. All yeah, of these it's, things it's, ultimately it's been a bad hit year. me uh, so 2020. So this is the ultimate pivot then, pivoting out of 2020. Hopefully. Well, I'm very optimistic and then I'm also very grateful because, you know, uh, 2020 could have come at me with a, uh, with a knife or a gun and not just a whip because everything that happened to me... You had it under control at some constant point. Constant whipping, yeah. non-stop whipping the whole year, but there wasn't something that, would like you know that like, said, i could have died you. from cancer i could have died from COVID. i could have died in the car accident or lamed or whatever of course uh, so in a way i have to be grateful that uh, as much as it is it could have been so much worse and i'm looking at uh, 21 and i'm saying you know life goes on forget about 2020 forget about everything that happened don't cry next to spilled milk. It's a very good motto, and and you're obviously an optimist and a, and a and a positive person. How do you see yourself? I mean, has it made you reconsider certain things in life, Nothing. or not really? Zero. No. Zero. This is a hiccup. This is a a bad uh, uh, year. Uh, you know, I'm going to be 64 in a few weeks. So, what's one bad year 
in 64 nice years and i always like really look back at the good times and i search for more good times because the the value of your life is how many good days did you live not how much you have and so on i i heard one time a guy that was very very rich and basically lost it all say this to a couple of friends you guys are very poor even though you think you're richer than me because if you look at back how much money i spent and how much <laughs> i enjoyed spending it versus you that uh, basically only now started making money and holding on to it yeah, on yeah, top yeah, of yeah, it yeah. This is, I'm much richer He's than He's richer you. because he enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, so of course. I also think that in life, it's not about how much you still have or you can do. It's about how much did you enjoy it and how much did you do. So it's about the process, actually. It's the actual living of it. Yes. As opposed to the looking back and thinking. Or front. Or front. I always say today is the most important day of my life. Not tomorrow, because I don't know about tomorrow. And, and yesterday doesn't count anymore. Yeah, yeah. But if you're going to do an assessment of how successful your life was, you just look back and count the good days and the, the good deeds you did, the yeah. good achievements you had, and it doesn't matter what comes next. Well, you, you can't control it this. anyway. Yeah, but if you have enough of it. Yeah, but you you know how much planning people do for the future. Of and, course, you know, but at the end of the day, we all know that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you but they still do plan. it. They still do it. <laughs> so, what's next for you? Are you you're stepping back from work a bit, or is it? Uh, are you still? Yeah, very I've been involved? trying since I was fifty five. No, I'm not involved anymore as much as I used to be, for sure. Your son is more involved now. I think he had to come back because we lost our CEO, and he had to come back help find a new one, and and actually gradually started relieving me from a lot of other. Uh, investments outside the Orascom. Mm -hmm. so we still have a family office with a lot of stuff because I am not very, I'm not getting the same kick. In yeah, it. well, fair and enough. And if you're not very happy uh, in what you're doing, then you won't do a good job. Absolutely. So for me, I have a couple of little things that I do left and right, but to be actually looking at Excel sheets and numbers yeah. and how much well you you obviously also have a lot of interest so you don't need it anymore just just to do it it's it's really dwindled to be one more activity mm -hmm. that i do yeah as part of my my day yeah and not like the thing like it used to be when i was young i mean it's not like i've always been like this but I mean, sure i've always made space for other of course. things on the on the price of being more successful or make more money or whatever i was always yeah. willing and capable of uh, letting go some of the success in business or in money making for me to enjoy the rest mm. but now uh, making money or business in general has dwindled to be literally one of many activities yeah. Tamir, thank you very much thank you for that coming was absolutely lovely before I sign off today, I'd like to take a moment to thank so many of you for leaving such amazing reviews about the show on the different podcast platforms and for the wonderful feedback from listeners on Instagram. I'm really delighted that this show has resonated with so many people and I'm overwhelmed by the heartfelt compliments the show has received from far and wide. Please keep listening. Thank you for joining me on What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad and this episode was co-produced by Shirag Desai. I'd love to hear from you, so please connect with me on Instagram by searching for what I did next. I hope that you'll be able to join me again in two weeks' time for the next episode.